0: Let's pray. Our God, as we approach your word, we see the, your very face, your, the reality of who you are in the face of Jesus Christ. The word become flesh. So we ask for help and understanding who you are, what it means to us, how you reveal yourself, and what it's really all about. And thank you and we ask you to bless us as we study together in Christ's name, amen. Well, about 3,500 years ago, a man named Moses had this incredible experience. Called, called by the living God to be the leader of a nation and to receive God's laws that were going to govern that nation, Moses had a, a face-to-face relationship with God, the creator of all things. It says in the book of Exodus that the Lord spoke to Moses just as a man speaks to his friend. Now, I know a lot of people today claim that they have that kind of relationship with God, but they're probably not telling you the truth. But uh, Moses did have that kind of relationship with God, and it was intimate, face to face. God spoke with him, and uh, frequently, and it's very unique. Moses, even with that, Moses wanted to know God more. He wanted to know him in the fullness of his glory, and not in an ambitious way, but out of love that for God, he wanted to experience the fullness of his presence. So he actually prayed, show me your glory. And God told Moses, you can't really see my glory, because if you saw me in the fullness of my glory, you'd drop dead. But he said, but I'll do something for you. I will reveal myself to you a, a bit of my glory. So he said, I'm going to put you in this cleft, like a rock, and I'm going to, cover you with my hand, and he's using these anthropomorphic terms, using a lot of human language here, and he says, and my glory will pass by, and and then he's going to take away his hand, and Moses can see the the tail end of it, the, the parting part of his glory, so he can get a glimpse, not the full thing, because the full thing would take his life. So that was also the time when God wanted to use um, Moses to... Um, received the law so he tells him to make these tablets he'd already broken the first tablets but to make these tablets and bring them up to the mountaintop and he's going to write on them and um, that's the thing so we're talking about Moses 40-day experience up on Mount Sinai and I want you to notice that as God passes by it's probably amazing to see anything of God's glory but God spoke And he didn't ask him to speak, he said show me your glory, but God spoke and the words are what we have. You can't even, we can't imagine, I don't know what we saw. Cecil B. DeMille could not capture the image of what he saw. So we don't know, but the words, the words, God's words as he passed by, what he spoke to Moses is what we have. And that describes what God is like. So it's a really significant moment in biblical history and it's so early, way back in Exodus. So, These words matter much more than what Moses saw. I'm gonna read um, from Exodus 34, starting at verse four. This is who God is. So it says, he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Anytime you see called upon the name of the Lord, that means you're worshiping God. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, these are the words, the Lord. We just sang that song, Yahweh, Yahweh, that's the name. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So what is God like? How did he express his glory in words? Verse six again of that passage, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. So, you know, people like to rag on the Bible. Um, people that do that, they, they, they describe, this is very common in our time, um, They describe God as a cruel, monstrous, jealous, wicked being. He he doesn't describe himself that way. (laughs) This is how he reveals himself. Now, he is holy. And it's interesting that people accuse God of that because it's humans who are cruel and hateful, and God hates that. Some humans, they're sort of like, children throwing a tantrum you know they like to say that God is cruel and hateful because God takes right and wrong seriously you are so mean that's that's sort of the human reaction to his holiness because humans love their sin but God unlike humans doesn't act like sin is no big deal If if you are pure goodness you loathe evil you hate it right it's abhorrent to you, and God does judge sin because he's good. And he says, so right there, verse seven, he will no, by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So he's holy, he's not squeamish about judgment, he's not reticent, he's not, um, it doesn't, nothing keeps him from doing that. He's, it's perfectly right and fitting for him to judge the whole world. In fact, he did judge the whole world. And only eight people survived the great flood that God brought upon the world in ancient times. It takes a lot for God to give up on people or move against them. That's when it says he's slow to anger. It took a long time to get to that flood uh, thing for human beings. And and Genesis says the heart, the the intent of the human heart was, was on evil continually. And he let that go for a long time until he brought the flood. So he does wait, he is patient. But he does it because God is holy. But here to Moses, he's revealing his heart and most of what he says is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. It takes a lot before God gives up. People, People think he's not really watching, you know, and that nothing will ever happen to them. He's simply being patient. He's patient, giving numerous opportunity for rebels in his kingdom to see if they're on the wrong side entirely and come his way humbly. That's what he's waiting for. And he's very patient. In fact, in Romans it says the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. So he abounds in loving kindness and truth and that manifests itself in this blessed forgiveness to all, all who repent and believe, no matter how wretched They've been. He's willing to forgive, and he's so gracious. So that's how God revealed himself 1,400 years before Jesus was born. So now you can start moving towards Matthew chapter 20. When the New Testament speaks about Jesus Christ, it says that in him, all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. That's in Colossians chapter 2. All the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. It also says, in the book of Hebrews, it says, he is the exact representation of the nature of God. So we should expect to see in Jesus what qualities, the very ones that God revealed to Moses. Is that what we see? Yeah, that's what we see. All those qualities. But here in Christ, we find them in a man. A man unlike any other man who ever lived. Who in all of history is known for more compassion than Jesus Christ? That's simply, the, he's, he's actually the archetype of compassion, isn't he? Who abounds more in loving kindness and truth? Who is more ready to forgive, yet never compromising in any way, or in any way diminishing the rightness or the holiness of God's law? Who is more like that? No one. Jesus, God as man, reveals God to man in person. I couldn't help but consider these things as I was looking at our little text this morning in Matthew chapter 20. It's the conclusion of the chapter. It's the story of a healing, not a very different story Event And many of those kind of stories we've already seen where he heals somebody, yet it it stands out, not because it's more spectacular, but because of when it happens. So if you've been with us, you've been kind of following along um, this section of the gospel, uh, really starting with the rich young ruler and following all the way down through the events that followed that. And last time we examined um, Jesus' discussion with his disciples about leadership. Remember, James and John wanted to sit at the right hand and the left hand of God and they got their mother to ask Jesus to let them do that and sit by him in the kingdom and all of that. And um, He says, let's talk about what leadership in the kingdom looks like. He said, the greatest is the servant of all, right? So they've been wrangling about who's gonna be in the highest position. All, All the disciples were arguing with each other about that. How dare they ask that? You know, what about me? And all that kind of stuff. So... Who would occupy the most prestigious places? And he reproves them gently um, for thinking like the world. In the kingdom way, verse 26, he said, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And the paragraph that follows that, which we're gonna look at today, starting in verse 29, is a living illustration of what Jesus just told them, servant leadership. We also talked last week about the, the setting here. Jesus is traveling with a large band of disciples and they're on the road with a lot of other pilgrims all making their way down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That was the most attended of the required feast that people typically went to. So all of Israel is streaming to Jerusalem and they're part of that group, Jesus with his 12 men and then other people in his band. Some of the women that followed them and helped encourage them and paid for some of their expenses and other disciples like that. They're all moving down there but he pulled aside the 12 to give them this lecture on servant leadership because they needed to get that down real quick. And we mentioned that in Mark chapter um, 10, um, it describes Jesus as as walking with this determined, resolute way about him Um, he's on his way to complete his mission, which is to die an excruciating death while bearing the sins of humanity. That's where he's going. This is the last trip. That's what's at the end of this walk that they're going to Jerusalem. His demeanor amazed them, it says. They were amazed. And it says the other people behind the 12 that were part of the band were fearful because he was so, Isaiah, what did we say in Isaiah? He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He was, there was just something about his demeanor going there that struck them all. They all noticed it, and talked about it. And the end that he described to them is actually back in verse 18 and 19. This is where he's going. He told them back in verse 18, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death And we'll hand him over to to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. All of that is right before him. So we're traveling with them. And then we come to Jericho, the ancient city. In fact, many archaeologists and people that study the ancient world believe that Jericho is the oldest city in the world. And they definitely believe it's the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. In other words, there's been people that lived in Jericho longer than any other city on the planet. So it's kind of a neat place from that point of view, it's kind of significant. From a first century person's point of view, if you're going from Galilee down to Jerusalem, Jericho is the last large town you'll pass through before you get to Jerusalem. And there's other little tiny villages along the way, but that's the last major town. So, um, and they and all Galilean um, people going to Uh, the Passover, going to Jerusalem, would always go through Jericho. You can go another way, but if you go the other way, you're passing through Samaritan territory. And guess where a Jew would never deign to go? (laughs) Yeah, to walk through Samaritans. We're not doing that. So they they went around to make sure they went down um, the pathway through Jericho to Jerusalem. And so that's where everybody's going. The perfect place, if you're a beggar, to position yourself would be on that road. Everybody's coming down that road. And they're all in a religious mood. And that's a good place to be. It's better than the exit place at Walmart, and it's, it's better than that place getting off on, at Avenue P getting off the 14, it's better than that, <laughs> if you're a beggar. It's not only the location, it's the perfect time of year because all these pilgrims are coming down and they're in a holy frame of mind. In fact, we know that, if you ever noticed in the book of Psalms, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, there's a little superscription over the psalm that says a psalm of ascent. We have to ascend to Jerusalem. There's a hill there. It's on a hill. And they would sing and chant those psalms as they were going to Jerusalem and going up the, the, the Psalms of Ascent. And it's pretty fun to read through those and think about you as a pilgrim going up to Jerusalem to worship. It's a, it kind of a beautiful thing. Anyway, that's where they are. That's where the people are. So they're probably in a pretty generous mood to poor men. So there's these two blind men, these beggars by the roadside, right out, right out there next to, Jer- next to Jericho. And one of them, Mark tells us, was named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. So we know his name, and, and that is one of those little historical markers that demonstrates the historicity of the Gospels. You really get a, gotta get tied in on those little details. Phony Gospels never have real people in them or even bother giving little detailed names to people. But when it really happens, you do give those things. And that, that's what this is here. Mark, who wrote his Gospel, tells us the name of one of these two men. And he was a witness of what Jesus did in Jerusalem. Mark lived in Jerusalem. And unsurprisingly, um, Those people that were in his category of people that lived there um, witnessed a lot of these things firsthand. And this man, he either knew already or came to know because he gives us his name. In fact, Bartimaeus may have been very well known in the early church because while Matthew mentions there were were two blind beggars and doesn't name them, Mark and Luke both mention just one, and that's Bartimaeus, the one that everybody knows by name. So when they're writing their gospels, they're saying, you know Bartimaeus that was healed by Jesus? This is his story. That's what they were saying. And Mark and, and Luke weren't there. Matthew was actually there when Jesus did the healing, so he knows there were two guys. He doesn't bother mentioning Bart- Bartimaeus's name, but... He, um, he mentions him and his friend and their affliction. So, anyway, they're begging, and this large crowd comes by, and verse 30 says, and the sound of it is probably not typical. There's more excitement. Something's getting their attention, and maybe they asked, what's going on? What's what's happening with the crowd? And and somebody says, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's passing by. And so they hear about that, or they know. They are learn it from somewhere. And if, Jesus! Well, everybody in Israel knew who Jesus was. The miracle stories were spoken of everywhere, and... The talk of his being the Messiah was on a lot of lips. People didn't all know. They knew he was a prophet at least. They um, thought maybe he was the Messiah. And Bartimaeus believes he is the Messiah. So does his friend. So verse 30, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus, son of David. They can't get to him, so they're using their voices, right? Right? That's how they're reaching him. So they're crying out, asking for mercy. And what is son of David? Why call him that? That is a title of the Messiah. If you call somebody son of David, that's a messianic title. Everyone was aware that Messiah would be a descendant of David. And these men believed, based on what they had heard, that Jesus was the son of David, the coming one, the one they were waiting for, a descendant of David. Israel's hope, Israel's king, And look at verse 31. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Shush, you beggar. You're making a scene. Will you stop shouting? You're making a fool of yourself. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Stop talking. And Jesus, his face set like flint moving toward his goal, the cross before him, he hears them off on the side there. And he makes a choice. Now, he could stop or he could keep going. Surely the thoughts of his coming death and sacrifice were in his mind. He knew what was coming. Had he been a self-absorbed sort of person, he could have neglected the cries of those two men and just, well, you know, I'm leaving behind thousands of blind people that are never going to be healed and uh, I'm on my way to do something really important. And uh, all kinds of excuses were at hand to not be merciful on that particular day for him. Not now, man. I've, I've got worse things ahead of me than you'll ever know. He could have felt that way, thought that way. I think a lot of people would feel that way. But the Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity transgression and sin and Jesus is that same Lord in human flesh that's who he is you know when John wrote his gospel John 13 1, it says having loved his own who are in the world he loved them to the end the, the love of Jesus is not ever limited it's never abated it's unaffected by circumstances and personal experiences and anguish his own anguish of heart would never keep him from ministering to somebody else that had a need so verse 32 it says and Jesus stopped those are are beautiful words if you're a beggar crying out from the side of the road aren't they? Jesus stopped he stopped and called them And Mark tells us that others pass the word along to them. Take courage, arise, he's calling for you. Now, were those the same people telling them to shut up? I don't know. If they were, it shows how two-faced people are in the presence of important people, right? Stop bothering the masters. Oh, he's stopping, he's calling for you. (laughs) Now, it could be different people. Could have been some people were saying shut up and some people were saying, oh, he's calling for you. But I don't know, but people are interesting. Anyway, they get to Jesus. They must have been led there by the people. They're they're blind, after all. And when they get to Jesus, the Lord asks them a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, I'm sure that even without divine knowledge, he could see their condition and knew what they would want. But he asks them. He wants them to ask him. He wants them to pray, in other words. God You know, when you pray, God doesn't need to be informed. You know that, right? I mean, He actually already knows your circumstances. It's not like, hey, have you noticed what's happening? You don't have to say it like that. He does know. But He likes us to ask. Why would He like us to ask? Because He wants us to have this relationship with, with Him. It's not magic. God isn't like a magic genie or anything like that. If I, Oh, I need this, I'm gonna say the formula and then get my thing for me. There's this relationship with the living God, the creator of all things that you can have and he wants you to have that relationship with him. So he wants you to ask and he wants to bless you. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan guy said, by spreading our case before God with a particular representation of our wants and burdens, we teach ourselves to value the mercy we are in pursuit of. And that's exactly right. We value that it's coming from God when we bring it to God as a person, and ask for his mercy. That's why he wants us to say that. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He's giving them an invitation to ask. So when we ask and we appreciate the answer, and most of all, appreciate the one who is answering us, it glorifies God and it helps us build that relationship. And Jesus wants that kind of relationship with these men. So asking helps them focus, not just on the gift they're asking for, but on the giver, right? So they're focused on him. It establishes the nature of the relationship. They're they're the supplicants, and he is the Lord, right? So he asks them, and they answer in verse 31, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. We want to see. And if he grants their request, that means they can function in society without charity. They can quit begging. They can go back to work. They can enjoy the world that God had made. Give us our sight. And they believe he can do it. They believe in him. And Matthew tells us exactly what Jesus was feeling. Tells us what he was feeling, his emotional state at this very moment. Moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. He's eager once again to serve other people, even though all these things are clouding his mind and he set his face like flint. It says, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. And Luke tells us that Jesus said, regain your sight, your faith has saved you. And once again, jo- Jesus shows himself merciful. He's compassionate on the afflicted. And that's just as true today. If, if you have Christ as your Lord and Savior, then when you are in distress and you cry to him, you can be absolutely sure that he hears. And he not only hears, but he has compassion. He's already well disposed towards his children that pray to him he's just as compassionate as he ever was he might not heal every ailment that we have all the time like he did off so often when he was here in the world his physical presence on earth was actually meant to show what it means when the king is present that these things are happening it's kind of a glimpse into the millennial kingdom when he's when it's going to be nature's going to be renewed and what he calls the restoration, Jesus calls it the restoration, when nature will be, the curse will be lifted and things will be wonderful and glorious. But, so we might not get all of that here and now, that's kind of for the future, but he does hear. You can still cry out, have mercy on me, and he's still merciful, and he might very well heal your thing, but he's gonna be there for you. Psalm 145.8, we read it earlier in the service, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great and loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, his mercies are over all his works. Those same qualities that God revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai are in that Psalm. And once again, the same qualities we see in the person of Christ, God the Son on earth. We see in him the mercy of God and he reveals God's mercy right here in this story. He exhibits in his person the nature and character of God in heaven. If you've seen me, Jesus tells the disciples later, right? You've seen the Father, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So always remember that. If you ever wonder about God or get into kind of a funk and get down, you know, and he seems kind of mysterious and far away, well, think about Christ, Because Christ is the exact representation of his nature. Christ is God in human flesh. That is God. And you will know if you think about Jesus that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and and great in loving kindness, abounding in loving kindness. Because that is exactly what we see in Jesus consistently. And you can know that that's what God is like. Well, what happens to a man who puts his faith in Jesus and receives his mercy? Well, the very last words of the chapter give us a clue. They regained their sight and followed him. They followed him. Some people want God's favors but don't have any intention of following. These men were different men. They followed. Remember the rich young ruler from chapter 19? Bartimaeus and his friend follow Jesus. That man would not follow Jesus. There's something else, too, that you should know. Luke 18.43 uh, Luke says about Bartimaeus, it says, immediately he regained his sight and began following him, and then it describes what that looked like, glorifying God, and when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So Bartimaeus was not only happy, he was thankful, and he was publicly thankful Praise God, I can see! And that kind of thing is contagious, you know? Everyone around starts thinking about God too and praising God as well for his great mercies and it's a wonderful thing. Is it, is it any wonder that only if days later, literally a large crowd are laying their cloaks before Jesus and putting palm branches on the ground as he rides that little donkey into Jerusalem and they're singing his praises as the son of David, the Messiah? From day one, the faith of these two blind beggars bore fruit in the lives of other people because of their testimony, because of their testimony. So let's take the beggar we know, Bartimaeus, and compare him with the rich young ruler who we met in chapter 19. Jesus felt compassion for both men. Do you remember what it says about the rich young ruler? It said he, he, he felt a love for him. And let's compare Bartimaeus and that man Bartimaeus had nothing. He was a beggar. He was a nobody. That young ruler had everything wealth, earthly respect. People in the community thought he was a godly young man. The beggar made no claims for himself at all. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he believed falsely that he had met God's standard, right? He was very self righteous. Oh, yeah, I've kept all the commandments. Is there any other ones? Bartimaeus only asked for mercy. That's all he wanted was mercy. That young nobleman, he wanted that one extra thing that he could perform to make make sure he had eternal life. He was approaching it based on his good deeds and stuff. Bartimaeus didn't have anything to offer like that. He just said, be merciful. Bartimaeus persevered in faith when people told him to keep quiet the rich man walked away and he could not handle the implications of faith he wouldn't follow Jesus the beggar gave God glory and honestly when you read the story of the rich young man he didn't have God's interests at heart at all it was all about him he didn't care about the glory of God but Bartimaeus this beggar does The contrast is huge. And I think it's really meant that story of the rich young ruler and all the things that followed leading up to this, they're meant to kind of bookend each other. And the story of Bartimaeus and these two blind men is, is meant to show you the other way. And it's really the difference between salvation and condemnation. Are you coming to God for God, or are you coming to God just to get favors out of him? And the comparison makes me think of the song that Jesus' mother sang after the angel visited her in Luke chapter 1. Do you remember when she sang that little song? He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. God always responds to the cry of the humble. And the Lord looks to those who seek him, who will follow Never be ashamed to cry out for mercy to God, you know. There are things to be ashamed of. If you're wrestling with your wife and she gives you in a headlock and you can't get out of it, be ashamed. <laughs> if you're playing chess with a seven-year-old child that's never played before and he wins, be ashamed. <laughs> but, if you as a tiny mortal who has repeatedly broken the laws of the creator of the universe, and you know you have an appointment to stand before him one day... Cry out for mercy. Don't be ashamed to cry out for mercy. Do it. It's the right thing to do. It's the most reasonable thing to do. It's the very thing he wants you to do. Sure, people might call you names. Be quiet. Jesus freak. I think back in the 40s, they called you a holy Joe. I'd love to be called a holy Joe. Nobody ever notices that about me. I don't know what they call people now. Oh, hater. That's what they call you. Hater. (laughs) Hater. You're a Christian hater. I think think what people still say, and I've heard it all my life, is, oh, that's a crutch. You need Jesus for a crutch. Right? Ever heard that? You need a crutch. And I just say, brother, I need way more than a crutch. (laughs) I need a heart transplant. And that's what he gave me. I've got a whole different heart from him. God had mercy on me. He heard my cry. He changed me from the inside out. I had a heart transplant, and it's working well. I have new eyes to see with. So think about these blind men. Stop shouting, be quiet, be still. They knew better. They had eyes waiting for over there across the road. They had vision waiting for them. They weren't gonna give up on that because people were telling them to shut up. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So in the same way, When people insult us, don't let that bother you. You know that God has redeemed you. You see the truth. You see the love of God in the face of Christ, and nothing compares with that. If Christ opened your eyes to the reality of his person, the person of God, your creator, and he has redeemed you so that you can be in fellowship with him, then follow, and follow wherever he leads. Follow without fear of the crowd because you won't be disappointed. Those guys were not disappointed. Don't let anyone or anything deter you from receiving the gift of God's mercy. He's more than willing to grant it to you. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Let's pray. Our compassionate Father, we seek your mercy. We cry unashamed because our need is ever before us. But the cross of Jesus tells us that you are as compassionate as you are holy. You made a way for sinners to become your children. And so we follow with praise on our lips. And let us be worthy of the mercy we've been shown. We ask in Christ's name, amen.